to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Today, I'm going to, I want to pick up from where we left off last week. You know, we have a series. We do it for about five to six weeks. And uh, the thing with series is sometimes, you know, you get a conclusion uh, with a sermon, but sometimes, you know, it kind of spills over to the next. You know, think about like, you know, uh, those like happy anthem songs, like ta 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 And then we go home, and then we come back next week, and then we drop the beat. And so series, you know, sometimes it, 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 it takes in, the, uh, the sermons takes different forms and it ends differently, but, you know, all in good fun. And so this is a six-piece meal. And so, you know, we encourage you to consume all six pieces. If you eat KFC, maybe two, okay, but six, okay. And so if you missed last week, I uh, encourage you to go back, listen to last week's sermon, and this will really help you give, uh, help give you a better understanding of what we are talking about today, okay? Are you with me? Okay, in the opening week of our journey towards emotional health, we are beginning to see how today's approach to Christian discipleship can sometimes result in a lopsided life. You know, I talked about it last week that this is our church service, okay? We have praise and worship. Happy, happy, sing, sing, jump, jump. We have great people who share our service, tell jokes. Andre is funny. Andre makes you laugh. Happy, 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 happy. This is church. Now, if your understanding of idea of Christianity is that Christianity equals to church, then your Christian life, this Christian faith that you subscribe to has no room for lament, anger, grief, sadness, silence. You know, we, we run a great service here. You know, you have programs that are stacked back to back to back to back. And, you know, we do a bunch of activities here. But if you think that the Christian life is just about Christian activity, about being happy all the time, then my suggestion to you and through this series is that you're missing a big part of what discipleship of what Christianity is to be. All right? Now, we base this whole series on a quote from Pete Scazzaro. Now, I practice saying his name 10 times, Scazzaro, 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 and I've lost it. Pete Scazzaro. Okay, Peter. And he says this uh, in his book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. May this quote speak to you. Now, here's the point. For far too long, the church has separated spiritual maturity from emotional health. We have a tendency as a church to ignore pain, deny our anger, numb our depression and anxiety, avoid conflict and live in fear of raising questions and doubt. And now all these things, okay, for the most part in most churches, these are considered spiritual virtues. It's virtuous to deny your anger. It's virtuous to ignore your sadness. It's virtuous to not raise questions to God in the face of doubt and unbelief. And we call that faith. As a church, we've been strongly focused on making disciples of Jesus and maturing in our spiritual growth. This, of course, is vital to the life of the church. However, we've recently discovered that we've basically ignored our emotional and relational growth. And this has left us unbalanced, and this is why we're doing this series. Now, I'd like to give you a very quick, short, base definition of emotional maturity. In short, emotional maturity is the ability to identify and manage your emotions, as well as the emotions of others. This, I believe, is a missing component of spiritual formation in the church, a big one. But fortunately for all of us, emotional maturity is not fixed. It's not something that you are just disposed, born with, that you cannot do anything about. We can grow and become more compassionate, self-controlled, spouses, parents, leaders, and people. Now, I have two goals for us uh, in this series and specifically to this sermon for us to understand. Emotional health and maturity is very much a part of spirituality. It's very much a part of your spiritual health. And our goal here is to learn from scriptures, to study the life of Jesus, whom we believe is the most emotionally healthy person who ever existed. And our hopes is in doing so, we become more like Jesus. The second thing I would like for you to understand is this, that oftentimes our emotional dysfunction, the outbursts, Pathological sadness, morbid fears, anxieties, and symptoms, they are often caused by a deeper issue, a disordered soul, a disordered internal world. Am I making sense to you? Are you with me? 
When we are emotionally healthy, the symptoms will appear in many ways. I have a bunch of symptoms for you to read. This is found in this book. Let's have the next slide up. If you can never say I was wrong or I'm sorry, if you are constantly criticizing others, if you feel as though God is always disappointed in you and you're always living in fear that the other shoe is going to drop, if you feel like the love you have in your life is never enough and people and relationships always disappoint you, if you take every critique as a personal attack, now, I don't know whether this makes sense and uh, resonates with any one of you. But these, though apparent, are often indicative of a deeper internal pain, of a deep, deeper emotional issue. Now, here's the simple truth about emotions. We all know the good ones. We have euphoria, excitement, happiness, gladness, and these are all the fun feelings. And for the most part, we know what to do with these feelings, right? Press the boss pause button, make them go as long as possible, extend the experience. We know what to do with the happy ones. But we know that being human beings, we also experience the other side of, emotional, of emotions, the negative ones, anger, rage, sadness, grief, disappointment, fears, insecurity, low-grade anxiety, depression, we all know that as human beings, having been able to experience the good ones, we are also susceptible to the bad ones. And the question for us as we're exploring is what do you then do when you experience the bad ones? What do you then do when you are faced with sadness, with grief, with loss, with pain? How do you navigate these tough emotions? For the most part, we are completely clueless as to how to deal with the negative ones or we employ methods as I suggested last week, of detachment, suppression, and distraction, all of which does not really deal with the real issue. And we find ourselves swirling in a never-ending cycle of emotional pain and spiritual oblivion. Now, there's hope. This is church after all. We talk about Jesus. Okay? And so in Jesus, we find a better way. And this is where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 26. Let's have that scripture up. Matthew 26. I made the fonts bigger, if you notice. You know, because of the vehement opposition. But Matthew chapter 26, it goes like this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Next slide. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now we see the Messiah, the Son of God, in a place of turmoil. Scriptures tell us that he was sorrowful, he was troubled to the point of death. Now if you read it in its original text, it would suggest that the Messiah was convulsing, he was heaving, he was weeping, he was in a place of deep anguish and pain. Now, most of us understand Jesus to be a Spock-like, alien kind of figure, like, blessed are the poor, blessed are... Mm -hmm. And Jesus has virtually no emotions. If you look up pictures of Jesus or paintings of Jesus on Google today, you'll see most of them, he has a really stoic face, a really poised, altogether, he looks like a white Caucasian man, never mind that he was born in the Middle East, you know, let's not even talk about that. But Jesus looks all prim, all proper, clean, not cleanly shaven, but you know, his beard was trimmed, he looked proper. Now, this might conflict with your image or your understanding of what the Messiah looks like. Jesus, Son of God, was in deep pain, anguish, sorrowful to the point of death. He was deeply emotional. And we see the turmoil of his soul. Here he is, wanting to do the Father's will. Wanting to, his desire was to do the Father's will. That was the whole point. But then we see him caught in the tension of, he wanted to do the Father's will, yet he didn't want to be killed, beaten, mocked, scorned. His soul was in turmoil. He was held in a place of tension. Now we see in this exchange in Matthew chapter 26 that Jesus 
gives God his emotions. He says, I'm sorrowful, I'm troubled to the point of death. Jesus then gives God his honest desire. May this cup pass from, away from me. If it is possible, I don't want to drink from this cup. And this cup is a metaphor for the cross. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with the story of Scripture, but that was the whole point of Jesus coming to earth. Jesus came to earth with the goal, the intention of bearing the cross for you and me. And Jesus, at a point of sorrow, of being troubled, of anxiety, said, I would rather not take this cup at all. He gives to God his honest desires. And then we find that passage ending with Jesus giving God his trust. He says this in the last slide, My Father, it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Now Jesus, the Messiah, doesn't cope like we normally do when we face negative emotions. Usually we detach. We stay far away from it. Usually we suppress. We shove it down, shove it down, shove it down, and then one day we explode. Or more often than not, we distract ourselves. We keep ourselves occupied. We binge Netflix. We go for a drink. We get really, really social, put a bunch of noise in our lives to distract ourselves from the real issues, from the real emotional pain that we feel. This passage, we see Jesus dealing with his emotions and pain. All the awkwardness, the fears and insecurities, Jesus goes right in the thick of it, stares it down, feels it in its entirety, the pain. Why? Because Jesus was emotionally mature. Jesus was emotionally healthy. Jesus doesn't avoid the pain, but rather he walks through the pain, staring it down in his face, and on the other side, he finds trust, assurance, and I believe rest for his soul. He looks at the pain, he stares right in its face, he walks through it, and on the other side of that surely painful, surely tough journey, he finds trust, assurance, rest, for his soul. Today, my sermon title is this, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I'd like to talk to you about walking through pain. Walking through pain. Walking through pain. You know, I am definitely no expert on this subject. I don't profess to be a savant. I don't profess to be a person who has accomplished it all, who is, by any definition, emotionally healthy. But, you know, I, I, I believe that this is critical to yours and my spiritual walk, like I said in week one, that this is not a, I've attained it all, here's how to do it kind of a sermon, but this is, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder, brothers in arms kind of thing, like we are on a journey together as a church. Now in week one, we, we, we uh, much like week one, we're still doing broad strokes, we are talking about things really broadly, if that makes sense, but in the weeks of come, we will talk, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about how to navigate through specific emotions, stuff we're going to talk about like anger, insecurity, how do you get by those stuff, but uh, today is going to be one of the broad strokes one, okay? Are you ready? I realize I haven't prayed that and kind of do that thing here where we pray, but <sighs> all right, let's pray, shall we begin? Jesus, we look to you this morning and we ask for you to come and still our soul. Still the, the unsettledness in our spirit, still the restlessness, still the storms that rage within us. For any of us that, that has come here with uh, pain in our lives, with anguish, with sorrow, with lament, with unsettledness, with anxiety, Lord, just as you did with the storms, won't you come the storm within us? God, we thank you that in your presence is peace. It's the peace that crushes the head of Satan. It's peace that comes. The storms that rage. And God, we ask for your perfect shalom to come upon this place, come upon our hearts, come upon our souls, even as we look to your word this morning. God, we ask that even as we glean from your scriptures and we dive deeper into this subject, that you'll guide us by your Holy Spirit, guide us by your presence. Lord, we say that we, we don't want to do this thing uh, based on our own strength, own human ingenuity, or own knowledge, but we want to be guided and led by your Spirit. Spirit God, we invite you to come to this place, rule and reign, lead us, guide us. We look to you this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Amen. <coughs> 
Some people wake up happy. Some people wake up sad. Some of you are morning people. I hate you. Some of you are, you know, more midnight people like me. Some people wake up happy. Some people wake up sad. Some people wake up uh, on the right side of bed. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. They are all ready to go. How many of you are like that? Yeah? Just joyful, really Christian people. <laughs> bless, bless are you. Some of you wake up sad. You know, some of you wake up uh, and, you know, your hair is all frazzled. And uh, you have the crustiness in your eyes and you know you drool on your pillow because you wake up and it's wet and you have that, that little crusty stain here. And uh, you just feel like, for lack of a better word, death. You just feel like, you know, this is, this is horrible, this is horrendous. And some people wake up sad. You know, some people wake up lethargic. Some people wake up with fatigue. Some people wake up honestly sad. Honestly, and I don't use this word lightly, depressed. Some people wake up anxious. Some people wake up with a morbid fear of the future. Some people wake up happy. Some people wake up sad. Now, I, for many years of my life, would fall under the latter category. I wake up sad. Now, this is not a sob story. You know, I'm, I'm not after your pity here. But you know, I want to give you a bit of context and understanding to why we're doing this as a church and why this series has... Uh, it means so much to me, and, and, I'm, and I'm so expectant in God for what it will do uh, for you and what God will do in your lives through this series. Now, now I, I, I said to a bunch of you that now, when people heard that Andre was talking about emotions, they're like, good gosh, bless the church. And so you have people praying for you right now. They're like, Andre, you're talking about emotions. And I like to think myself as this like, cerebral, intellectual, like I read books kind of guy. You know, I'm like, hmm, you know. I don't have emotions. Everything is logical, you know? And, but, you know, over time I realized that I'm not wired that way at all. In fact, I am a highly, highly emotional person. And that might like trigger different words or different categories that you're placing me in your head as well. And for some of you, emotional person equals like this guy like goes to the movies and he cries all the time. I can tell you, I only cried at one movie in my whole life and it was Toy Story 3. 3, because... Man, the Andy thing uh, still, still touches my soul. I only cried one movie in my entire life. You know, Amy cries all the time at movies. She's very in touch with emotions, and you know. But I, I like to think of myself as not emotional. But through this last few months, I've discovered that actually I'm wired very, very emotionally. I'm not as cerebral as I think I am. Now, this is the story. The story goes ten. When I was ten years old, I had my first suicidal thought. I was 10 years old. Uh, the impetus came out of a fear of repercussion, uh, a sense of worthlessness and hopelessness. When I was 10 years old, that was when I had my first suicidal thought. I remember I was standing at the ledge of a, a building and I was uh, thinking of jumping and that was when I was 10. And those thoughts will stick with me uh, and haunt me for a number of years after. It will rear its huggy head every time I felt insecure, every time I felt worthless, every time I felt a sense of pain. One of the, 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 the thoughts that will percolate the service was the thought of, like, I should just end my life. I should end the pain, the suffering. I should just give up. And, uh, you know, I, I battled it for a number of years. But fast forward to uh, ministry school. I remember going to ministry school. And, um, you know, that was a, a big faith journey. But I remember uh, the first few weeks being emotionally really, really tough. I remember uh, boarding the plane and uh, I didn't know anyone in the US. It was my first time there. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I boarded the plane and uh, what happened midway through the flight was I started having these uh, you know, panic episodes. I started breathing really deeply. I started hyperventilating and I was really scared. And I don't know how many of you can have ever experienced it before, but you feel it like right here. It feels as though you drank like eight cups of coffee. You feel like unsettled. You feel like you can't sit down. And I was in the plane on my way to the mecca of Christianity. I was on my way to doing Jesus stuff and I was having a panic episode. And I remember, you know, I took out the phone in the plane and, uh, you know, they have like the little credit card slot and you swipe your card and you make a call. And four hours into the flight, so long, uh, four hours into the flight, I made a call and I called Amy and it was early in the morning for her and I was on the, on the, on the plane and I was panicking. And that call co cost me like some 50 US dollars or something else most expensive call I ever made. I remember landing uh, in the airport 
and I was taking out my laptop and I was like a frantic person. I was trying to get Wi-Fi. I was trying to FaceTime. I was trying to connect Amy. I was walking around the airport with two bags and the laptop trying to find Wi-Fi just so I can see Amy's face and feel better. And afterwards, you know, I, I landed and I got settled and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm okay. I feel settled. I feel okay now. And I remember the first few weeks of my time there. Uh, I would wake up in the middle of night completely drenched in sweat. You know, my bed was uh, completely drenched in sweat. And I would wake up from uh, these night terrors, these uh, nightmares of um, something happening to my family. I would dream about death all the time. And this happened for two or three weeks. And I was panicking. I was sleeping like three to four hours a night. And it's a really, really, really interesting episode. But after that, you know, I got prayer and I did, did all the Christian thing that you would do. And then after it stopped, then I was like, ooh, okay, you know, maybe it's a spiritual attack. And so I was like, okay, let's move on from it. Fast forward, you know, um, it was my third year of ministry school. And many of you know, I had my dream internship. I was, I was interning for like the guy and I was really happy about it. I was at a high point of ministry school. I was really known, really loved, and uh, to some degree, respected in, in the community. I was at my high point. And uh, the way I describe it is one morning I woke up, and I woke up really sad, as uh, I would in most, most days. But you know, after you know, a shot of espresso and getting out and getting some sun, you tend to feel better about yourself, right? But what happened in that, in that, uh, in that day, in that season, was I woke up, I felt sad, and I didn't stop feeling sad for two weeks. And um, I had a, a bit of flexible arrangement with my internship. And what happened was for two weeks, I didn't leave my house. I would order takeout or maybe run to the restaurant that was next to my house. But I stayed in my room for two weeks. And it was the picture of like sadness and de depression. I was wearing the same pajamas for like a week. Same pajamas. It was like not pretty. And, and uh, I was uh, sitting on the couch. I was eating ice cream out of a tub you know, and watching Netflix. That's the picture of sadness. And I was like eating ice cream on the top and uh, I was eating it for lunch, you know, because I was like, I, I don't order takeout, I don't want to go to the restaurant, I was eating ice cream for lunch. And that happened, but two weeks after that, it kind of stopped and I was like, okay, you know, maybe it's a spiritual attack. Maybe, you know, uh, it's just one of those phases and I got over it. And um, fast forward to last year, you know, uh, I just taken over a church, took over a church in March. And, uh, you know, but to be very honest with you, for the two, three years I was back prior to that, you know, I had little episodes every now and then. I was really stressed up, really anxious about a bunch of stuff. I had a bunch of, like, very irrational self-expectations self that I placed on myself. And, uh, you know, I was getting three to four hours of sleep, uh, three to four hours of sleep every night for a really long period of time. I was not exercising. I was eating really late. I was living a very, um, in my words, unsustainable lifestyle. And uh, it all came to a head uh, in August. You know, as I mentioned in a sermon I did a while back, I had a bad health report. I had a really bad health report. And it was uh, on a Sunday, right smack in the middle of a miracle series. Talk about ironic. I was talking about unanswered prayer. I was talking about navigating disappointment. And then right at the end of it, I had a health report, and I had to go to the doctor on that Sunday, and uh, it was tough. And uh, what I did after the diagnosis was on Monday, I sat alone at home. Really, 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 really bad idea. I sat alone at home, and I, my mind was just in the gutter. It was swirling, swirling down all these feelings of loss, of anger, of sadness. And, uh, you know, I would say even the draw, the temptation, the sin was far greater than I've ever experienced in my life. Far greater. It's just so ironic how these two things go together. You know, when you're sad, when you're depressed, when your gut is down, you feel drawn and you feel really pulled by the gravitational pull to sin. And so the smartest thing I did was, you know, I, I stuck with my appointments. I had a bunch of appointments that day that I set, up, that I set a long while ago and I went for those appointments. I kind of like shoved everything under the surface and uh, gradually I made some health improvements. Hallelujah. Look better now, you know, wearing an M. And uh, things are going on track. I feel better. I was losing weight. I was happy, 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 happy. I was very happy. And uh, a few months ago, you know, someone, uh, I was meeting up for coffee and I was telling a person like, oh, this is a bunch of health, health updates and I feel better now, blah, blah, everything's good. A-okay. And the person said, wow, you know, you had that diagnosis in the middle of a miracle series. 
wow, that, that's really interesting and uh, that must be tough and how do you navigate that? And the person posed the question to me, like, how do you get over your offense with God? I was like, offense with God? And then it hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment that I was to some degree harboring pain, offense, anger towards God. Now, these, these might be very foreign words or a foreign concept or like words you don't usually associate with God, much less interacting with God in that manner. Anger, offense, disappointment. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can't, I can't do that. I am not allowed to. And, uh, and I remember one day I went home and I started praying about a bunch of stuff and I was just talking to God about you know, this whole thing uh, I was facing. I was like, God, you know, may your will be done. I was doing all the right Christian prayers. I was like, yes, God, I look to you in spite of the mystery I'm facing, my faith. And I was getting through all these like standard Christian platitudes, Christian prayers. Then all of a sudden, you know, it shifted. I began to get really emotional. And in the midst of my emotional, I prayed this prayer. And when the words came out of my mouth, I was like, no, you know, and the words were, Jesus, I literally work for you. How can this happen to me? And I shouted it like, Jesus, I literally work for you. How can this happen to me? And in my head, I was like, die. <laughs> I was like, thunderbolt time, you know. I was thinking like, you know, and struck dead, you know, and like pastor struck dead for, you know. For complaining to God. And I was like, snakes are going to come up. And like, you know, and uh, I was like, I was, I was expecting some form of like retribution for what I was saying. But you know, in, my, in my head, you know, it's like, God is like Zeus, you know, punishment. But, but we all know different. God is, God is love. God is like Jesus. And so I, I prayed that prayer. And, and here's, here's what that's it happened after I prayed. I prayed that prayer. Um, it was when I prayed that prayer and when I began to be aware of what I was feeling and when I confessed that pain that my healing began. You know, part of um, the, the funny thing about the whole uh, health thing is um, I used to wear a tracker. I don't think many of you know, but I, I wore a tracker that tracked uh, my blood sugar levels. And, um, I was, and the benefit of that is that it plots a graph for the whole day. And I remember I was doing really well. And uh, one Sunday I was speaking and I was particularly nervous about the sermon. Most of the time I'm nervous, but this one I'm particularly nervous. And so I was really nervous about the sermon and I shared my heart out. In the morning I didn't eat anything. I was like very spiritual and I shared my sermon, preached it. And I was like, in Jesus' name, amen. And then when I went back home, I had the shock of my life. I saw the graph and I saw that at 10.45, the sugar level spiked up to the roof. And then it stayed up there all the way until 12.15 in Jesus' name, amen. And then it shot back down. And I was like, what in the world is this? And so it didn't help that internal turmoil. I was like, wow, you know, my life like, is getting worse when I'm speaking, when I'm doing your work. And I was like, all sorts of offense. You know, I was telling a bunch of people that like the scripture that really ministered to me in that time was the story of Uriah. You know, if you know Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, David killed him by sending him to the front lines of, that, of the, 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 the war. And it's like, go to the front and die. And I was like, I felt that way. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, I am so Uriah. And there was one morning, like, the, a bunch of our leaders were out of town and then they were traveling a bunch of places. I remember standing up in the front alone, all of y'all at the back, I was standing on the front alone in worship, and I was like, wow, I'm Uriah. <laughs> and, and so I, I felt that, man. I was like, wow, you know, Uriah done. But, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, this is what I said, you know, when I prayed that prayer, when I acknowledged that there was pain in my life, when I confessed it, when I brought it to God, that was when my healing began. And this is a foreign concept to a bunch of you. Like, how can you be honest to God? How can you actually bring your pain to God? Today, I'd like to suggest to you that, you know, we all know worship equals offering praise. But I'd like to bring us to a conclusion that worship can take a form, a form that we might be unfamiliar with, and that form is offering pain as worship. Offering pain as worship. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, you know, uh, and it familiar passage of scripture goes like this then the lord god formed a man 
from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being, in some translations, a living soul. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. This fledgling new creature called human was created by God himself and placed in a place called Eden. And Eden, we know what mean delight. Eden means delight. Human's address, human's first address was literally a place called delight. When the rabbis talk about Eden, they talk about it with this idea of shalom. Shalom, we're all familiar, is a Hebrew word usually translated to peace. But it means so much more than that. It's health, joy, delight, vitality, flourishing. It's life as God intended for life to be. When God made the world, when God made human beings, this was what he had in mind. And if you're familiar with the story of scripture, you know that mankind willfully disobeyed God. And because of God's mercy towards men, not wanting them to live in a perpetual eternal state of sinfulness, he drove them out of Eden. And from that moment, we have pain. What is this pain I'm talking about? It's pain of distance from God, separation from God. It's a pain of distance from one another. You know, we see in, in a story that was blame shifting, they're blaming each other's pain, it's distance from one another. But also pain, distance from the earth. The Bible says that thorns and thistles sprouted from the ground, making the working of the ground painful and laborious. The way the Bible in Genesis describes this condition, this condition called pain was death. And death would not just mean physical death, but death would mean the opposite was contrary to what God intended for things to be. Now the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know this, that we were made for Eden. Are we? Yes? We were made for Eden. But the truth is, we don't live in Eden anymore. We don't live in Eden anymore. We were created for flourishing, for shalom, for an intimate connection with God, each other to be naked and unashamed. I get naked and very ashamed. Naked and unashamed. That's what we were made for. But that's not the world we live in anymore. Because of that, we were born and live in a world of disappointment. And here's the truth. No matter whether you're a Jesus follower or not, you will experience disappointment in life. Here's my belief. My belief is hardwired in every human being. It's a longing, it's a latent memory of Eden. And every single human being wants, desires, longs for Eden. Every single human being knows that the world we live in today is not as it should be. And with that failed expectation and longing comes with it disappointment and with that pain. And here's a simple truth. The truth is, life is pain. Very encouraging word. Life is pain. The reality is that we live on the other side of the Garden Eden in a world that has been unhinged from all that God originally had in mind. And because of that, we all face pain and suffering at some point in our life. No matter how wealthy, how educated, how smart, how savvy you are, all of, my, all of you, myself included, it's not a matter of if, but when we'll experience pain and suffering. We all deal with some measure of pain. Some of you, the loss of a job, loss of a loved ones, loss of dreams. Some of you are anxious about the future. Some of you, your kids are turning out not like you intended or willed for them to do so. Some of you want desperately to be married. Some of you want desperately to be single. It's true. It's true. Some of you live in a tension of unfulfilled promise, unanswered prayer, a condition, a circumstance, or in the language of Paul, a thorn in the flesh, all pain. Tim Keller, a brilliant pastor, he writes this. Let's have that quote up. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> no amount of money, power and planning can prevent bereavement, die illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Thank you for the pep talk, Tim. That was great. Last week, we arrived at a simple conclusion that to be human is to feel. And our, my suggestion is that as humans, we not just feel, but we feel deeply. And that's what distinguishes us from robots, 
you know, from the rest of creation. Jesus, though fully divine, was also human. And being human, he embraced his humanity by feeling the whole spectrum of human emotion. But the conclusion I'd like us to come to today is this, simple. To be human is to experience pain. To be human is to experience pain. Thank you for this hopeful word, Andre. <laughs> to be human is to experience pain. Think about it. A hundred percent of the people in this room will experience the loss of a loved one. A hundred percent. A hundred percent of this people, of the people in this room, will experience the loss of their lives. Will experience pain. So the question I want to chase after today is: If suffering, pain is inevitable. There's just no way around it. To be human is to experience pain. Then the question is, how do we suffer well? How do we walk through pain? What do we do with the feelings of anger, anguish, loss, disappointment, frustration, pain? And we usually employ one of those three methods I talked about earlier. Detachment, suppression, distraction. But soon we'll realize that all three methods are non-sustainable. They don't really fulfill the needs of the soul. And eventually you'll find an outlet and this is how you, our pain usually finds an outlet. We buy more stuff, more clothes, more shoes, more tech, more and more and more and more in an attempt to feel the nagging sense of emptiness that you can't seem to shake off. Or you literally fill yourself with more and more food. Now I heard an author say that, um, that covetousness, that our, our insatiable need for wanting more and more and more in life is, the, is gluttony of the soul. We turn to transactional relationships or to pornography to ease our deep need for intimacy, to be known and loved or other vices to numb our pain. Punching walls, banging tables, screaming, yelling as a poor means of communicating to the world your internal turmoil. Or this is the last and most dangerous one. We use our relationships as the proverb, proverb as punching bags to display our displeasure either of them, the world, ourselves, either through passive-aggressive communications or, at times, aggressive means. Here's my point. Not dealing with our pain can and will destroy our relationships, our finances, our very soul. But here's the flip side. On the flip side, pain, in many ways, can be a gift. C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Pain exists to guard us from permanent damage. Pain is a gift to keep you off your feet when you're injured, to allow your leg to heal, guard you from doing long-term damage. The same is true of our souls. Slow down, stop, listen. Maybe God is telling you something is not right. A piece of your soul that's out of rhythm, out of sync with God's spirit. And here we land on the question, if pain has to be dealt if pain is an indicator that the soul is in turmoil, that there's something off, that something that is out of sync, how do we deal with it? And we find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to read a whole chapter of the Bible. I know, a lot. A lot. For some of you, this will fulfill your week's quota. But okay, I'm being passive-aggressive. Bad Andre, bad Andre. But 1 Kings chapter 19, okay? Are you ready? It's a chunk of scripture, but... If you follow me, I guarantee you that there's something decent at the end of it. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now this story. Uh, we know uh, in 1 Kings 8, 18, uh, Elijah was at the high point of his career. He did all sorts of amazing stuff. Go read 1 Kings 18. It's really dramatic, really special, but we, let, we find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 19 after Elijah's high point in his career and his ministry. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. In some translation, the solitary place, the lonely place. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Next slide. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. Now he wasn't very in tune with this whole gluten-free paleo diet kind of thing, but you know, 
he'll get there. And the jar of water, and he ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, you know, I did some research and that journey I, on Google Maps will take about six or seven days. Elijah took 40 days and 40 nights. Talk about a slow, slow, slow walk, you know. Maybe he got lost, I don't know. But next slide. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for you, for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected the covenant, torn down your orders, and put the prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Next slide. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Next slide. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Repeat. The Israelites have rejected the covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Next slide. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Now I won't go through the rest. You get the idea. Congratulations, you've read the whole chapter of the Bible. Amen. Just, you know, <clears throat> thousands upon thousands more to go, and then you finish the Bible in a year. But helping you. Now here's a, a brief summary. Elijah's life was dazzling, okay? He is like, the prophet, amazingness, amazingness guy. You know, it says in the Bible that ravens will bring to him food. This is like the first deliver rune or deliver raven. <laughs> they bring to him his food, okay? God uses a widow to provide daily bread for him in Baal's territory. Like he didn't have to like, go out and get his own food, right? Everything was delivered. Elijah prays and God raises the widow's son from the dead. And it says this in the Bible, that he, he ran 17 miles. I'm bad at math, but... That's really, really along. 70 miles from Carmel down to Jezreel, outrunning horses and chariots. Now, this guy was fit. He was, you know, is yoke the word? No? Yeah, I don't know. But you, you get the picture. He was, mm. Then it says that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah wins a showdown against the prophets of Baal at Carmel. He calls out fire from heaven. He struck down 450 false prophets. Powerful, fit, well-fed guy. Amazing us. In the first Kings chapter 19, he's coming off the high point of his career. One minute he was on a high, the next he was running for his life. Read 18, he was on a high. Man, I'm the man. 19, a couple of verses in, he was running for his life. Has that ever happened to you? I, I call it the crash. And that will look like, you know, you have a great day, awesome, awesome, awesome. Everything's going well. Birds are chirping, you know, you have a bunch of good things happening in you. And then you get a text from your boss. Or someone makes a comment that pokes at this nagging insecurity that you have inside. You go on Facebook and you realize that there's a dinner, there's an event full of your friends that you weren't invited to. And all of a sudden, you crash. You hit the ground. Emotional turmoil, pain and suffering. And it's so funny, you know, if I were to ask you now to uh, uh, take out a piece of paper and uh, write down two lists for me. Write down ten things that uh, you are grateful for, that are good, that's, uh, that you're really happy for, and write down 10 problems in your life. And for most of us, it's so much easier to write the list of problems than the list of things that we're grateful for. It's the human condition. We focus on the negative. One minute he was on a high, the next he was running for his life. I don't know if it's just me or Elijah, but if any of you can relate to, a cra to crashing. Now, I'm, I'm going to move on. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, there's a Bible teacher that I'm really influenced by named John Mark Comer. He identified a seven-stage pattern of walking through pain. Seven-stage pattern. Now, all of you, your hearts just sank because you go like, seven more points? Don't worry. I'll just do two. Okay? Or maybe one. Yeah, we'll, we'll do one. Two. 
two, one, two, you do two. Now I use the word pattern, not formula, because this is not a cookie cutter, sure win kind of deal. But you know, he identified a seven stage pattern. I like to put that pattern up. In that seven stage pattern, he goes resting, waiting, feeling, naming, hearing, being transformed, re-entering. And in this seven stage pattern, you see Elijah journeying from pain into wholeness. And uh, I won't go in depth uh, in this sermon, but I'll make sure all these notes are uh, on the app. So it kind of kind of like incentivizes you actually going on the app. Huh? Okay. Now I'd like to uh, look at two of uh, two stages. I'd like to look at resting and naming. Resting and naming. In resting, we read that uh, in the passage we read earlier that Elijah got up and ate. Let's look at the passage in First Kings chapter nineteen once again. Uh, let's have the slide up. It says all at once, the angel touched him and said, "Get up and eat." He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and lay down again. Let's look at the slide before this. The slide before this. Now let's look at the last line. After his emotional response reaction, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell. Asleep. That's all Elijah does for a few days. He ate, he slept, he hydrated himself, repeat, ate, slept, hydrate, repeat, ate, slept, hydrate, repeat. Has that ever happened to you when you set aside time for God where you know you get all cozy in a bed, you dim the lights, you take out your Bible, your Bible, your Bible and uh, you're all ready to encounter God after a long day's work, you lie down in bed and like, God, I'm ready. And then, you know, you just fade off into the Father's loving embrace and that's the end of your prayer time. That's, that happens to me a lot. You know, I go to bed and I'm like, I'm going to pray. And then the next thing I, I go, like, oh, it's tomorrow. You know, and <laughs> we can all agree okay, that life in the modern world is exhausting. Do you agree on that? Most of us live with a low-grade fatigue or exhaustion that rarely, if ever, goes away. How many of you, after a long day's work, after you know, the grind, after fighting fires and work, after emotional turmoil at work, goes back home and then you go like, Yes, Father, pour out your spirit on me. <laughs> None of you do that, right? Or after a long marathon, you, know, you run your 42.195, you reach the finishing line and you go like, streams of refreshing, just fall on me. And then you start praying the spirit and you are just like dead. You know, some people tell me that when they run, they feel closer to God. No, I, I'm sorry, I feel closer to heaven. <laughs> After a long marathon, you're done, right? So many of us, right, are honestly too tired, too exhausted to be present before God to even pray. The truth is the state of our emotional health and I'll even say our spiritual health is often linked to the state of our physical health. I think of one of the most interesting paradigm-shifting verses in the Bible is Romans 12. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice Paul's language, offer your bodies, not your souls, your bodies. True sanctification and worship of God involves your soul and your body, all of you. Here's a, a quote that I hope would, would strike us deeply. One of the greatest threats to life with Jesus it's an exhaustion that comes with an over-busy life. With an over-busy life. In my counseling with people, more often than not, I say 90% of the time when I'm counseling a person through sin, through certain failures in life, they'll go, I was really tired. I was really exhausted. My gut was down. Therefore, there is a correlation between the state of your physical health, your physical being, and the state of your emotional, spiritual being. And you see, the first stage, the first step that Elijah took and walking and journeying towards wholeness was he rested. He was probably exhausted. After three lines, the Bible says he fell asleep. You know, some of I, I can at least do five, but three lines he fell asleep. And he ate and drank, hydrated himself. So the, in the first stage, the first step in walking through pain, you have to ask yourself the simple question, are your physical needs being met well? I'm not going to spend too long on this, but no, I have three that I would like to bring up. One is sleep. Are you getting enough sleep? Truthfully. The average person needs seven to eight hours of sleep, hallelujah, per night. Per night. The story of Elijah goes that he laid down under sleep and fell under a tree and fell asleep. Elijah was burnt out, depleted, and worn down. And what he really needed at that point was not 
presence of God revitalized me. What he really needed at that point of time was sleep, was food, was water. And some of you, you know, you're facing emotional pain today, soul is in turmoil, everything's out of whack. You know, yes, you need Jesus, you need God. I'm not saying that, you know, you have options here, but maybe the first step into walking into wholeness is get some sleep, get some rest, take some time off. You're over busy life. Now, next one is exercise. You know, I'm definitely no like, I have made it and attained it kind of thing, but I realized the importance in the last three months, so long of exercising. But am I getting enough exercise? The statistical data linking exercise to anxiety and depression is staggering. It's staggering. So exercise. I won't go too much in that, but the last one, you know, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruffle some feathers here. Is this. Ask yourself a question. Are you drinking too much coffee? <laughs> Are you drinking too much coffee? We live in a city where coffee is like the new wine. Coffee is like new wine. Coffee, or to be precise, caffeine in coffee takes your body on a wild ride. It does. The caffeine enters your bloodstream, pulses through your body. Once it hits your central nervous system, your blood begins increasing adrenaline, elevating dopamine. Your heart rate increases. Your pupils dilate. Your muscles tighten up. Your energy takes off. Squirrel! The caffeine high is a beautiful thing, right? But here's the problem. There was a quote from Up. You don't. Here's the problem. The effect only lasts a few hours, right? At which point the high exhaustion of your nervous system hits, dopamine and adrenaline starts dropping, fatigue kicks in, and your body crashes. The result is this. Your body and your emotions source and crashes up and down. You can be left tense, nervous, and anxious. But don't get me wrong. Coffee is amazing. It's amazing. Decaf coffee is heresy, you know. <laughs> that makes sense. I drank it for the taste. Mm. Okay. Don't get me wrong, coffee is amazing, but here's, here's the point I want to make, and some of you might agree, some of you might dis- disagree. Drink for pleasure, not for productivity. Drink for pleasure, not productivity. If you catch yourself pouring another cup of French press just to stay focused at work, maybe it's time to slow down and cut back. We might disagree on this, but there is so much study or statistical evidence that links anxiety to high caffeine intake. And some of you are anxious, are fearful, are paranoid because of the amount of caffeine you ingest in your body. Okay, I'd like to move on to my last point. And there's a stage called naming. Naming. And this is stage four. The seventh stage, plan to wholeness. This is what I believe was the fulcrum tipping point of the whole experience. Here, Elijah identifies and names his pain. He vocalizes it. Elijah could either fear his pain because of how faithless or non-spiritual it looks, or he could trust that he could be fully honest with God. Not only does Elijah have the courage to face all sorts of emotional pain, he then has the courage to name all that he was feeling under the surface in front of God. The good, the bad, and ugly. The good, I've been very zealous for you, God. The bad. The Israelites, they have rejected your covenant. My whole life's work is now in ruin. And the ugly, I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me. The implication here is that Elijah wants out. He's done. He was brutally, brutally honest. Now I'm not a psychologist, but based on the text, here's my diagnosis. Let's have that up. Elijah was afraid, anxiety. I have had enough depression. He ran for his life, paranoia. He says, take my life. He was on the verge of suicide. Elijah was in immense pain. Now, faith to most of us looks like the denial of circumstance. It doesn't exist. It looks like putting on a smile when the circumstances or the storms rage all around you. I'd like to suggest that faith doesn't deny the existence of a problem. It denies it a place of influence. But along with that, I'd like to suggest to you another aspect of your faith in Christ. And that looks like trusting God with your emotions. The book of Psalms is a compendium of ancient Hebrew poetry and music. One author called the Psalms the anatomy of the soul because it gives us a window into the deepest part of humans. The psalm functioned as a model for liturgy, but not only that it functioned, the psalms was a collection of songs that Israel used to sing in that day. They sang it in the temple, they sang it while they were journeying. The psalms are repeat with raw, unedited emotion, anger, fear, hate, joy, peace, anxiety, depression, bitterness, guilt, shame, freedom, gratitude, envy, doubt, trust. Every human emotion imaginable finds its voice in the Bible. The stoic denial of 
negative emotions, you tuck in your shirt and go like, hmm, I don't feel. Common in Christians today is completely foreign and alien to the biblical authors. We think about two-thirds of the Psalms were written by a man named David. He was a typical artist, melancholic, creative, expressive, brilliant, passionate, sometimes unstable, marked by ups and downs. And God built in him the ability to turn emotions into lyrics. And you're about to read some of his excerpts. Let's have that slide up. These are familiar scriptures. The king rejoices in strength, Lord. How great! It's his joy and the victories he gives. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Sing to him a new song. Praise skillfully and shout for joy. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let him praise his name with dancing and make music to him with the timbrel and harp and electric guitar. <laughs> now, those are familiar scripture. And those are great scriptures that we often quote in service. But what doesn't help us is that he also writes things like this. He writes, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings of a dove. I'm like a bird. I would fly away and be at rest. <laughs> for I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Intense, intense, intense words. Now, when I read David's writings, David's poetry, the word bipolar comes into mind. And sometimes you read the, the, the Psalms, he goes like, Lord, you are amazing, you are amazing. Lord, you ruined my life, but yet I will praise you. <laughs> bipolar, you know. <laughs> One minute he's on top of the word, and next he's in the depths of despair, sometimes in the same Psalm. Do you relate to this? Always swinging the pendulum of joy and despair, Faith and doubt, trust and fear, like David. Do you relate? Do you know what the Bible calls David? A man after God's own heart. God allowed a flawed emotional train wreck to lead Israel, his chosen people. But not only that, he took David's raw, brutally honest lyrics, gushing with fear, anxiety, doubt, depression, and questions about God's faithfulness and make them part of the inspired scriptures. Now you might think, that's okay. Let me have a verse for you. Psalms 27, it says this. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is in the Bible. This is part of what we understand inspired scriptures to be. The thought is this. Why the heck is that in the Bible? Why? How did that made it in? Surely some guy down the road would have cut that out and said, hmm, David was having an off day. <laughs> the thought is this. God is not shocked by your emotions. No matter how messed up your soul may be, God is right there with you, listening. In Psalms 139, we find our confidence for bold honesty. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know where I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Here's a simple thought. Why not pray honestly when God already knows our thought? Some of us think, like, hmm, I cannot tell God that. Well, my suggestion is that the dad we should think about telling, not telling God, that dad, God already knows about that. Profound. <laughs> this is the sermon excerpt, man. You see, okay, get my heart this. I'm not saying that you can get irreverent, curse and swear and blaspheme God. Please hear my heart in this. You know, I'm not wired that way. Anymore. I'm not bent that way. But I'm saying perhaps in your pain and anguish, you need to abandon Christian platitude, the token prayers, and actually commune with God by being honest. One of the favorite people that I love to pray with are new Christians. Because new Christians are not fluent in Christianese. Oh Lord, I bind and I break and I give us the unction to function, you know? This, this Christian press. Some of you are looking down, but you know, the, all the rhymey prayers, you know, and like, those, those are great. You know, please, please, please hear my heart in this. I'm not bashing prayers. I pray like that. But sometimes, you know, pain and anguish, you know, just pray the honest prayers. Actually commune with God. Actually approach prayer like a conversation. Because He is there and He wants to hear. He wants to be with you in your pain. Now I have another passage. This is a fun one. Psalms 88. And this is written by uh, one of Psalms of Korah, you know, the, the whole book of Psalms is not written by just David. It's written by one of the sons of Korah and his name is He-Man. He-Man is really popular on Saturday mornings in my house. And 
and uh, Masters of the Universe. Dated. <laughs> uh, Psalm 88, okay, and this is written by Sons of Korah, and this is a staggering, staggering psalm. This is in the Bible. It says this, I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near death. I'm comforted among those who goes down to the pit. I'm like one who is without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. Next slide, it says, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've suffered and have been close to death. I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> darkness is my closest friend. And you might go, ooh, is there more to the sum? It ends there. Now, with the David stuff, you at least get like happy, happy, oh my gosh, you, I'm ruined, and then like, God be praised. But with this, he goes, darkness is my closest friend. And then, mic drop. He's done. He's done. What is that? What is that? And can you imagine me that Psalms 88, it made it into the Psalms, okay? So it's a Psalm used for liturgy and for singing. They sung this in the temple. It's one of their worship songs. And we certainly don't have songs like that, right? We don't have songs like that. We might have the occasional minor chord, minor, and then you feel emotions. But then it goes up to a one and a five really fast and they're like, ooh, happy, you know. We don't have songs like that. Can you imagine? You know, I, I feel guilty even reading some idiot. Can you imagine like singing a song like, Darkness is my closest friend. You have completely ruined my life. It's all your fault. I don't know if I believe in you anymore. Amen. What is that? That is an ancient tradition and practice called lament. And not only that, Psalms 88 was inspired by the Spirit of God. In language of 1 Timothy 3 and Paul, it was God breathed. God's Spirit breathed out Psalms 88 through human suffering, personality, and poetry onto the pages of the Bible for thousands upon thousands of people all through history to pray and worship God like that. God says that's how you pray. What does that mean? That God isn't scared of our honesty in prayer. I will even go further to say this, that there can be no intimacy without honesty. There can be no true intimacy without honesty. And apart from intimacy with God, there can be no life, hope, and healing. Scriptures say that God is looking for worshippers, those who worship in spirit and truth. And you do a bit of word study, you know the word truth there doesn't mean theological, doctrinal truth. The word truth there means to be with nothing hidden. He's looking for those who worship Him in spirit and with nothing hidden. Today, I'd like to present to you the radical idea of offering your pain as worship. And that paves the way for what's called re-entering. Re-entering. If you read further down in 1 Kings chapter 19, you know that Elijah was charged by God to go back and return to where he came from. He went back to the place he was running from. Catch that. But here's the thing, Jezebel didn't disappear. The death threat was still present. Everything was still status quo. But Elijah had an encounter with God. And in that encounter, when Elijah met God, God gave him the strength, the resolve needed to face the pain that he was running away from. Here's the truth. The gospel does not promise the absence of pain. But it promises the presence of a person in the midst of your pain. It's Jesus. Jesus. And I remember when I prayed this prayer, like, Jesus, I literally work for you. How can this happen to me? Instead of a lightning bolt, instead of anger, wrath, and rage from God, all that came down in that moment was comfort, assurance, peace, rest for my soul. I'd like to end off with a last quote, and this is uh, from a book written by uh, two men, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. That's a great name, Tremper Longman. Trempetan? Longmentan? No? Okay. He says this in, in the, his book, Cry of so he writes, Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. That's a profound statement. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. 
Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. Next slide. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our inner consciousness. In neglecting our emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes from brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. I'd like to suggest to you that worship is meant to occur in the context of brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. My charge to you today is to walk through your pain and on the other side, find rest, trust, and assurance.